let's pray. To the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, you alone are the God who saves. What a tremendous reality this is that we serve a God who's not partial. He doesn't look at our circumstances and save us because we are poor. He doesn't look at our riches and save us because we are rich. He's a God who saves because he chooses to save. You're a God who calls both those who have and those who have not. You're a God who sustains those who are rich and those who are not. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. We can never twist your arm to make you do anything that we uh, want. We can never make you do and follow our bidding and our desire. But we, Lord, are your people. We are to do what you have commanded us to do. Your word is very clear as to the commands, the instructions, the exhortations, and the expectations that you have of those who are yours. We pray for those who do not belong to you, that this morning, that they may be drawn to Christ, Lord, whatever may be said, may there be a stirring of your spirit in their hearts, that they may find Christ to be the sole contentment in this life. For those who are yours, Lord, who are, are living in sin and rebellion, who are lacking the sanctification that they should be pursuing, may your Spirit move them to pursue Christ and Him above all things. For those who are faithful, who are walking with you, pray that you would establish their hearts, strengthen their souls, they too may be an encouragement uh, to others. We pray that you would work through your word as we give thanks to you in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. <coughs> Welcome to those first time visitors. We hope that you have a God-honoring time with us this morning. For those who are streaming uh, and online, we thank God that you have joined in as well. Our focus would be this morning, James 1, verse 10 and 11. Before we get to that, let me lay the foundation for it. In our day, the common pursuit of our society and our culture is the equal distribution of wealth. You may not have heard that yet, but that is what a lot of companies are being taught. There's a lot of that talk in government to take from the rich and give to the poor, to take from those who have to give to those who have not. The rising New sin. The greatest offense is what is often called privilege. I'm going to leave the one word out because there are those who do not understand abstract language yet, so I'm not going to 
um, cause problems for the parents. This is where a certain race is born to and is naturally more privileged than others. While they may not be the oppressors, they do really look like the oppressors and therefore they are privileged and they have to apologize for things that has done in the past and they have to pay for things that other people do. So take their riches and let's share it. Instead of dealing with oppression, which is what the issue is, this crazy world deals with wealth. Because sharing wealth solves all problems, right? No, it doesn't. Justice in our day is nothing more than sharing other people's riches, some gained honestly through hard work, and others gained by unrighteous means. But justice in our day has been wrapped up in this idea that those who have need to share with those who do not have. Some Christians shockingly say, what's wrong with that? Well, firstly, consider the greatest sin of our day is the sin of how you look. How people are naturally born with a certain skin type. The original sin of the social justice and the wokery of this day is the color of people's skin. The pure fact that they have a fair skin tone is considered to be an offense. Secondly, if the problem is oppression, let's deal with oppression. That can be easily dealt with. However, the major conflict we are seeing in social justice and wokeism is that this is nothing more than a smokescreen for covetousness. To desire what they do not have and to desire what the other person has. Give me some of that. Thirdly, the Bible does not ever advocate uh, the, the philosophies that is propagated by wokeism and social justice. Ever. You don't find it in scripture. No matter how sincere these movements are or individuals in these movements, the Bible never calls for the eradication of poverty by the distribution of wealth. You don't find it in scripture. There is a call to the Jews in uh, Obadiah and Hosea to care for their own. And we looked at that last week. How the responsibility starts with the family before it moves uh, to those outside. How do I know that this is not the biblical expectation? Because the very first book in the New Testament, the book of James, that may be a shock to some of you, but it's the earliest book written. We find that Jewish Christians are mistreated, oppressed, had wages withheld, and nowhere in this book does the author say that let's go after the rich guy. Let him give up his wealth so that we have a better life. Nowhere in this book is the burden placed on the offender. 
Isn't that shocking? You would expect James, at least being in the midst of a Jewish context where persecution, oppression is taking place, to say, cry out, let's go for a march or a walk. Let's do something to stop this oppression and this persecution and this hardship. Nowhere does he say that. Why? Because James understands a reality that is consistent throughout the scriptures. Vengeance is mine, says who? The Lord. You may not have your best life right now, but that is okay because you will, as God's people, have your best life in a life to come. You may not enjoy the the social ladder and live as the cream of the crop. That is okay. God doesn't frown on you because you are poor. God doesn't frown on you necessarily because you are rich. But that seems to be the mantra of this day and age that the rich are wicked and wrong. Nowhere in the book of James do we see that the rich man ever has to give up his wealth and distribute it to the poor. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But that is not a biblical cry. That is not what the Bible expects of this world. This is nothing more than socialism. Last week I said, our circumstances, whether rich or poor, I normally put poor on my left and rich on my right, whether poor or rich is a gift from God. Just read the book of Proverbs. He gives to the rich. And he brings low those who are lowly. Those who have not, he will exalt. And those who have, he will bring low. Everything in life is a gift from God. Whether there may be some of you who are on the richer scale than others, that is a gift of God. Now you probably worked hard to be there. And so God blessed you for your devotion and your hard work. There are those of you who are on the low scale of the social ladder um, and who cannot eat lamb every day. And who maybe just has a cup of soup, uh, you know, for supper. God doesn't frown on you because you are poor, but your situation is as much a gift from God as the rich guy is a gift from God. And his situation is a gift from God. This means that all that God gives is good by its very nature. You do not need to have more to have value in Christ. You do not need to live in poverty, as some thinks, to have more value in Christ. Christ is not asking you to give up everything, as in possessions, to to follow him. He does that to the rich man to make a point. That is, God was his riches. He only asks you to give up everything to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now that may sound like an oxymoron. Well, it is. Because while he's not calling necessarily for the giving up of riches, he is calling for your life. For everything that belongs to you to be his. For everything that you pursue to be his. Christ is not not more impressed with us if we are poor or if we are rich. 
because our identity and value is based on his imputed righteousness, not on what we own in this world. The challenge of wokeism, I call it wokery because it's fakery, and social justice can be easily answered from the plain reading of Scripture. Again, I'm not going to deal with those issues, but those are the, the prominent issues of our day, which you will deal with in your workplaces, in your lives, but this passage will bear upon that. Now, having said that, this morning we will deal with the future of the rich. Last week we saw the reality of the lowly Christian and the reality of the rich. James, in verse 9, says this is the reality of the lowly believer. Look what he says in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. It is stated in such a way that this is the reality of the lowly brother. Now, take note, it does not say poor brother, because that would be a, a smaller class of the lowly. The, those who are poor by means of uh, lack of resources. Now, there was even different grades of poverty. Those who are poor because they are lazy. There are those who are poor because they are of various circumstances. And there are those who are poor because of oppression. So even in the, the canopy of poverty, there are different grades in which we need to think through that. But he doesn't say that. He uses a word that is commonly referred to as humble. The humble brother, the lowly brother, the one of low social standing who, who doesn't live in the ivory towers. He's a normal bloke who's been brought low by the hardships of life. Let this guy or brother exalt in this reality that he is exalted in his exaltation. James says this is who you are. You are currently exalted. The verb here boast is to take pride in, to glory in, to glory in what is true of your reality. This is who you are as a lowly Christian. You may be lowly on earth, but you are exalted in heaven. That is the reality that he points out. This is a case where it's already, but not fully yet. Those of you who are into eschatology would understand what that means. There's an aspect of your exaltation which is true now, but you have not fully yet experienced it. And we will toggle between that and, and the next couple of verses because it's connected. James merely says here that the one who is lowly, and again, different word to the poor brother, which is in chapter 2, um, verse 2. The one, on account of his circumstances, on the low social scale, they who are brought low, the oppressed, they can exalt in the fact that they have been lifted up. Now take a look at chapter 4 and verse 10. I'm just going to mention it, but we'll get back to this later. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up, exalt you. So James is connecting these two realities. This is who you are because you have been lifted up by the Lord. The image that he gives is of a king who steps off his throne to come to the side of the one who bows before the king, and the king comes and lifts him up. That is the image that James gives. The Lord, you humble yourself before him, and he is the one that will come and lift you 
up. That is the future glory of the saints, which is a reality right now. So who is this person? Who is this lowly brother? This lowly brother is the one who has submitted himself before God and humbled himself before the Lord, and he is at that time of his writing already exalted, even though it's a future reality. Does that make sense? It's there as a truth, as a reality, but it's still future. The opposite to that is that God opposes those who are proud. God stands against those who exalt themselves. While those who humble themselves before him, those he will lift up. So the proud get brought low and the lowly get lifted up. This sounds like the book of Proverbs. It does because it's very similar to it. It's called wisdom literature. The one who comes and seeks forgiveness at the feet of the Lord, there's there's a a very unique interaction that James does in chapter 4. He speaks of God as submitting to God, but it is the Lord who lifts you up. In chapter 2, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then later on, he says, if anybody believes the verbal form of the, the word faith, that God is one. There's an interaction between God and Lord, God and Lord, who is God. Well, he is the Lord. Now, who is the Lord? Look at chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord, comma, who is Jesus, comma, the Christ. That is how the Greek is structured. The Lord is Jesus, who is Christ. So who's the Lord? Jesus, who's the Messiah, who's God. He's the Lord, who is Jesus, who's the Messiah. That is important for the context to whom he is speaking, the the Jewish people. So James has this interaction. You submit before God, guess who lifts you up? The Lord. Who's the Lord? Well, it's Jesus, who's the Messiah. So James shows that if you humble yourself and submit yourself before God, it means that you are accepting Jesus, who's the Messiah, as Lord. Now, there are those in this context who seem to have a problem with this, and so James constantly mentions it to remind them of who Jesus is. And these are the proud, those who oppose the truth. And he says of them that God stands opposed to them. Now also in verse 10, last week we saw the reality of the rich. And we ended on this confusing note. Look at the reality of the rich. And the rich, the verb is taken from the previous verse, boast, in his humiliation. But it's pretty clear what is meant here. The rich in his humiliation, he will boast or he boasts or he let him boast. Either way, the point is is there. This is where James speaks about this person who glories in his humiliation. Now, there's a contrast here, a mild contrast in the beginning of verse 10. But the rich, or now the rich, I prefer but because it is a, a certain Greek word. So James is saying, let the lowly, now let the lowly brother, but the rich, if he boasts, let him boast in his humiliation. 
the fact that he is brought low, I said that this is a reality very similar to the reality of the poor or the lowly guy. He's already exalted, even though he doesn't fully uh, um, experience that. The rich man is already humiliated, even though he doesn't fully experience that. So this obviously brings the question, well, who is this rich guy? Is he a believer or an unbeliever? That's the goal of our discussion this morning. So we will look at that, and even though we covered it for the most part on Wednesday, and you know where I stand for those of you who have been here Wednesday, um, but I want to approach it in a more systematic and biblical way this morning to show that what James speaks about here regarding the rich is the ungodly rich. Not the rich generally. We generally think about the word rich. In the Bible, we think rich in terms of how we understand it. He's speaking about a very specific rich person. Now, I know I am differing with your study Bibles at this point in time. That's okay, because there are those who disagree with that view um, for good reasons. And I want to show that it can be understood from the text Um, if we understand what James is saying in the context here. So don't shut me down because I have a different view. Don't, not yet, not yet. Give me some time. One of the challenges we have is that we start to think in terms of this word rich based on how we understand rich today. A guy who's worked hard, number one, and gained his riches, or a guy who got his riches by ungodly means. And so we think that is the only way that the rich could be understood. That's not the way that the rich was used in that day and time. There was different ways in which wealth was expressed. If you had a certain type of clothing, you wore a certain garb, you were considered rich. If you, let me put it in perspective. Generally, you only had to... um, Groups of clothing, one for daily wear and one for special occasions. Your work clothes, your living clothes, and your wedding clothes, your your special occasion clothes. The rich would change their clothes to show off their riches. So in one day, they would have four different outfits on just to show, I can do it. I've got fine linen. What do you wear? You wear sackcloth or you wear, wear goat skin or something. Just imagine the smell. I'm just saying, wearing the same clothes every day and you only bath when it's necessary. Yeah, there's an odor. <laughs> we have a different understanding of richness. There's, there's not only those who, who demonstrate their riches by their wealth, but there are those who owned land, multiple lands, and they were considered rich. There were those who became rich as tax collectors, and they would steal money from the poor to make themselves rich. They would take a cut, give to the government, and they would become rich. Do you remember anybody in the Bible that did that? Zacchaeus and Matthew, right? Um, There are those who, who became rich by hooking up with the right people, like the Guptas. Just saying... Nothing's new in this world. They, they became rich by making the right connections. And generally, those who were stinking rich were those who were in authority because they're stealing from the poor. Generally speaking, those who were 
above the normal aspect of riches were those who had the right connections, were the right people, and made the, the poor pay for their riches. So when we hear the word rich, there's a multiplicity of historical and cultural nuances behind that word. This morning, however, I want to look at this guy, this rich guy. What is his future through the eyes of James? Next week, we will look at the future of the steadfast, steadfast, (laughs) that was Australian, (laughs) through the eyes of James. Now, let's give attention to the future of the rich. Number one. The rich, who I say is ungodly rich, will enjoy the riches briefly, verse 10. And the rich, let him boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. We started touching on this last week. But James says here that the reality of the rich is this. He's humiliated. Because the reality opposed to that of the lowly is that he's exalted. So the opposite you can see taking place. Lowly, exalted, rich, rich, humiliated, or brought low. But take note why. Why does the rich glory in humiliation? Because this is the reason. This is why he glories in humiliation. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. In figures of speech, this is called a simile. He is like a flower. Not just any flower. A wildflower. Literally, flowering grass. Ever seen grass flowered? Um, No, right? Because he's talking about a specific flower that grows in the the wild desert that is un- Um, uh, tamed by man, and between the grass you've got this beautiful little uh, flower that pops up for a short, brief moment of time. It is the same word and same idea that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 12 where he says, um, uh, do not worry about what you shall wear, because if God clothes the flowering grass the wild flower, how much more will he not clothe you? Wild flower is uncontrolled by man. But God clothes him, gives him beauty. But even in that context, it is given the idea of temporality of a very brief moment in time because he's wrapped up and thrown into a fire. In other words, it's good for nothing. Jesus spoke of these wildflowers as having a fleeting existence, and it is commonly used that way in the ancient Near Eastern context. They are temporal. James uses it in that way as well. Notice what he says. Let him glory in his humiliation because he's got a short life. He's got a a, a short, uh, what do we call it, shelf life. He's like milk. You know the fresh milk, not the... The, what is it, long life milk that lasts like for 20 years? No, not that milk. The real milk that you buy, it's, it's good today, but in uh, two days' time, you know, it will go off. Now, unlike milk in America, that it lasts forever. It's, um, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> it lasts long. But unlike that milk, 
milk that comes from a cow doesn't last long unless you refrigerate it for a little bit of time, it, it will last. That is what the rich man is like. He's got a short life. This is not similar to, <clears throat> sorry, to what we find in the book of Proverbs. Now, what does it mean that he's like flowering grass? Remember, it's an analogy. It's a, it's a picture, a word picture. So James is drawing us in to think of the wildflower and how the wildflower only has a short period of time and saying, well, if you can think of that, this is what the rich man is like. <clears throat> flowering grass, wildflowers, beautiful, beautiful for a season. The rich man put on display beautifully his riches for a season. They come out, they display all their beauty for the world to see, and then when the heat comes, and the affliction comes, and the water dries up, then so too does he, like the flower. <clears throat> does not last. It has no future. Like Jesus says, year today, gone tomorrow. And that's the point. <clears throat> the rich, they have a short life. This is commonly used to show the transitory nature of life. So now if you haven't understood verse 10 because of the confusion as to who this guy is, verse 11 is the explanation. So let's see what James says. So not only, one, does the rich enjoy his life briefly, but number two, the rich will come to nothing in the end. That is the point of verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuit. Notice at the end of verse 10, he will pass away. Notice at the end of verse 11, so also will the rich fade away. He has a limited life. And it comes to nothing. It amounts to zip. The force of this word at the, at the end of verse 10 is, is the fact that he uh, participates in his own end. Now, that's not suicide. He's not talking about suicide. Is that he is the cause of his own demise. It's slightly different to the end of verse 11 where he's caused to end because of his own pursuit. So like a seasonal flower, this rich man will be briefly put on display and then is poof, removed, gone, good for nothing. This word pass away means to go from one place to the other. It's like passing through a town. You're not stopping and having coffee. You, you just drive through. It's like a, a town that you, you're driving on the end to and you blink and you ride past it. Like, uh, what is a small town? It's Bloom small? I don't know. Bloemfontein is small, right? Who comes from Bloemfontein? Good. Coles? It doesn't matter. A small town. You're driving and one second later you passed it. You keep on moving. Again, the idea here is transitory nature, short life. It's here and then there, it's gone. 
That's his life. But I think James has something more in view. I think he has the perishing aspect in view. That is, he's high now and slowly fades to nothing. Why do I say that? Look at verse 11. The sun rises with his scorching heat and withers the grass. What does that picture give to you? It dries up, right? And you can see it in your mind withering. As the water gets drawn out by the heat, it starts to dry up. Have you seen um, elephant skin? Yeah, it looks like a person who's like 300 years old, right? Dried skin. Not that we have anybody 300 years old here, so I could make that joke. But anyway, it, it, it's dried up. So there's no more life and energy and nutrients in it. There's nothing. So when the sun comes up, there's an external factor that causes an internal change. It flower falls off. Not only the petal, the flower itself disintegrates. What is the flower likened to? The man. It's beauty. The nature of who he is that is put on display. It perishes. Now look at the last part. So also will the rich. You can take out man because it's not in the text. The rich. So also will the rich. There's a perishing that's taking a place. So he says, this is what happens to the rich man. That is James's explanation of who the rich is and what his future looks like. But there's something else that's going on here. James is quoting the Old Testament. I have some time for this. Go back to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. I know that based on your commentary notes in your study Bible... You may not be convinced, but that's okay. I'm not here to convince you of my view. I want to show you what James is saying. I want you to see the rich through the eyes of James. This quote is found in verse 7. Now, notice what it says from verse 8. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. That's what we have there, the wild flower. The grass withers... And the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Hmm. One of the rules of hermeneutics is when a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament prophet or author. He's not just making a text-to-text correlation. He's not just saying, oh, I'm just quoting it here for the sake of quoting it here. He draws everything from that context into that singular verse and says, consider this, remember this, this may be that, depending on who is writing. So think of that when you get to James. So let's look at Isaiah. All flesh 
will see the glory of the Lord. And that's his point here. Look at verse 5. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it. And the mouth of Yahweh, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So his major point is that God is going to manifest his glory. He's going to put it on display. And two ways in which his glory will be manifested to people. Number one, through the salvation of his people. And number two, the judgment on the rulers, oppressors, and the rich um, who oppress his people. So the glory of the Lord is made manifest to those who are his by the reality that he saves and he preserves them like his own sheep. How do I know that? Well, this is what the text is speaking about. If you look at um, verse 1, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. That a warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, speaking of salvation. That she has received from Yahweh's hand double for her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, speaking of the one who is to come. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every low place shall be lifted up. And every mountain, every exalted place shall be made low. The even ground shall become level and the rough places plain. You see, in that, there's already the imagery of being brought low and lifted up. In the Alex X, the glory of man is inserted here. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it. Jump down um, to verse 22. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely sown. Scarcely have they taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them like uh, carries them off like stubble. Does that sound familiar? Surely does. In verse uh, 6 of James chapter 1, who does he speak about? The unstable man who is tossed to and fro by the tempest, by the wave of uh, the winds or the waves of the sea. He speaks about one that withers. But take notice very specifically. When he blows on them. Who's the he? Go back to verse 7. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on them. So how do they wither? How do they come to seize? God breathes on them, blows on them. What is the imagery that you are getting from that? The breath of God is therefore like heat that not saturates, that dries up the flower and draws it out to nothing and then they come to nothing. So James takes that and he quotes that in James chapter 1 verse 11. And he says, remember this? This is what I'm talking about. 
Now, you may not fully understand it yet, but who is the they in verse 24? Just look up a verse. I'm going to go up to verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, speaking about the splendor and the glory and the greatness of God, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to what? Nothing. And makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely uh, has their stem taken root. And he blows on them. Why the rulers? What is the historical context here? Isaiah is speaking about the invasion of Babylon. Babylon one of the things that they did was go into the high places, the holy places, and take the riches of the people that they've invaded. They became rich by plundering those who they've invaded. These people oppressed those who came under the authority. These were the rulers and the authorities and the rich that God is talking about in Isaiah. And he's saying these rich, these oppressors, these rulers, they are planted for a short season. When I blow on them, guess what happens to them? They come to nothing. There's a ton of interesting words being used in this section. But one of the things that strikes me is that they are caused to come to nothing at the end in verse 24. It is the breath of God, that pure heat of judgment that goes across the the land and, and, and destroys all those who oppose his people. What is that? That is judgment. The causative effect of the exasperation is the very breath of God. God causes them to come to nothing. Now, how does this context relate to, the, uh, to what James is talking about? First of all, in Isaiah, there were those who invaded them, or who would invade them, these oppressors. They've taken them captive. And the Lord says, I'm going to bring about both this reality and your salvation. The Lord will save those who belong to him. Look at verse 10. I'm going to read from verse 9. Go up to a high mountain. Just remember the imagery, low and high, low and high. Go up to a high mountain on Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, which is down below, Behold your God. Behold the Lord comes. The Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Take note of this. Behold His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tender his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in the bosom and gently lead those that are young. 
He will be the great shepherd to his people because he will come and protect them. He will bring the salvation and his reward will come with him. I'm not sure if he's seeing it yet, but there's a lot of correlation between that and James chapter 1. Now, go to verse 28. Have you not heard? Have you not Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint nor grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Take note of this. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. The young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and will not faint. We love that verse. It's a, you know, one of those life verses. You know what he's saying here? I will provide you with the endurance that you need to get through this hardship. You will endure because I cause you to endure. So God is coming. There's a reward for those who are going to go through the, the Babylonian captivity. Those who endure this captivity, those who are faithful to him throughout this captivity are those who he, whom he has caused to be faithful. Go to James. I want you to show that James is not merely quoting the verse out of context. Actually, take merely out. James is not quoting the verse out of context. He's drawing that entirety of Isaiah 40 into the singular verse. Notice what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness have, uh, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, like the tempest of the sea tossed to and fro. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Take note of that word. He is a double-minded man, unstable. In all his ways, a double-minded man. Here is repeated in chapter 4, verse 8, who is an unbeliever, the sinner. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will come to nothing. For, for the sun rises with his scorching heat. What is that equal to? The breath of the Lord. And withers the grass. What is that equal to? The rich who have um, made themselves rich on the, the poverty of those whom they've invaded. It falls off and its beauty perishes. They too will perish. So will the rich man fade, come to nothing in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed, notice the reward, is the man who remains steadfast under trial. I don't know if you see it, but James has just taken the entirety of chapter 40 and zapped it into these three, uh, 12 verses. There's judgment and reward. There is salvation and, and endurance. There is a wiping out of the rich ungodly 
and an exaltation of those who remain steadfast. Notice what he says. For he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Wow. This is God will do to... This is what God will do for those who remain steadfast to him. Now, just turn your mind back again to Isaiah. Flip it back. What is he saying in Isaiah? Babylonian captivity is coming. Those who endure will endure because I caused them to endure. Those who endure will be rewarded because I've caused them to endure. They are mine. They will endure because they will be steadfast because I made them steadfast. Now, flip it back. Not like that. To James. And what does James say? He says that you will be, be steadfast. You will endure. Why? Because you are God's. He has made you what you are. Not God's as in, that, that came out wrong. No, you are not God's. Possessive. You are God's. You belong to God. And he says you will be rewarded. Why? Because you remain steadfast. He's saying the same thing as Isaiah chapter 40. You know what he's saying? Those who are your oppressors, they will come to nothing. How do I know that? Because James mentions them in this book, chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing gold ring and take note, fine clothing comes into your synagogue, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. You pay attention to the one who, wear fine, who wears fine clothing and you say, you sit over here in a good place. Well, you say to the poor man, you, you, you stand over there. Or you sit down here by my feet. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith? To be rich in faith. And heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. But you, the rich man, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name which is Lord, by which you were called? Chapter 5. There's so many others I can show you. Come now, you rich. Weep and mourn and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last. He's not talking about good treasure. Yes, you did. You have enough treasure for the last. And it's going to come back upon you. Behold the wages of the laborers who have mowed your, your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He, the righteous person, does not resist you. Verse 7. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Why? Because he's coming in judgment and with reward. So endure. Who's the rich? Well, James has just explained who he was, who he is. He's the oppressor. He's the one who blasphemes the name. He's the one who drags them into courts. He's the one that withholds their wages. He's the one that murders and kills them and gets away with it. You know what you don't see here? Is James saying, let's discuss equal distribution of wealth. You know what you don't see here? Is James says, let's discuss social justice. Let's discuss fighting for our rights. You know what James has in mind here? There's a reversal coming. The rich are rich now, and they're exalted now, but you will be exalted. Your day is coming. God will come. And with him will be his reward to those who belong to him. I fully agree with Dr. Mu on this. He says this phrase in the same way makes clear that James is now introducing the point of the imagery he has used. And the point seems to be the utter destruction of the rich person, In quote. When he says, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. While he's still running after his riches, what will God do? Blow on him. And he will be consumed. He will perish. And after this, Moose says, but that can't be proven, which I disagree with him, because it's probably a believer. I'm not, dude, read the text. What's the point? This is a unique situation where in this synagogue there's believing uh, saints and unbelieving saints. There are those who have come in who are rich and there are those who are poor. And James says to those who are God's people, be faithful, endure. Don't worry about what's happening in the world. Don't worry about how they oppress you. You know what you do? You endure. You show steadfast love and devotion to God. Because that is a quality of those who belong to God. Why? Because it is God who gives and grants it to them. Wake up, wokery. Wake up, social justice. God doesn't call us to riches and to have our best life now. He calls us to faithfulness right now. Even if it is poverty, praise his name for that. Even if it is for some to have rich in the church, for riches in the church. Praise his name for that. Doesn't matter what God gives you. Praise his name for that. Now what about the rich? And I'm not going to be able to deal with that. We will come to that on Wednesday. What is the responsibility of the rich? Paul deals with that, not James. And so we will close on that note. So next week we will see what the future of the The future reward of the steadfast man is. I know I haven't answered all your questions, but that is okay. Uh, I'm sure that um, we will hash it out on Wednesday in Bible study. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the tremendous, precious nature of your word. You will vindicate your name. Those who are oppressors now, those who are rich because of ungodly gain, those who are 
opposed to your people will one day give an account. For now you have allowed them to flourish, but for a short period of time. And you will bring them to nothing. They glory in what is humiliation. Their reality is that they are humiliated and they will be fully humiliated in the day to come. But we, your people, we pray that you would come and help us to understand what it means to be exalted in Christ. Help us to appreciate the fact that despite our circumstance that we have an an immovable standing with you in glory thank you for this reality and we pray now lord that you would open our eyes whether believers or unbelievers save those who need saving and sanctify those who need sanctifying we pray these things for your name for your glory alone amen